0: Welcome to the PT and OT connection podcast by Summit Professional Education dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Christina Klimaz. This is Navigating Parkinson's Disease Obstacles, Evidence Based Interventions for Targeted Treatment, and Tips to Sidestep Complications in an Episode of Care. So let's start out with why do this topic for a podcast? I was making progress with my Parkinson's patients and then hitting a wall. Very often, I saw progress in strength, endurance, ADLs, and then a regression. Sometimes stress or a fall caused the regression, but progress back to where the patient was before that regression never happened. I started thinking, what am I missing? I started scouring the research and I found tips that I added into my plan of cares that helped make more gains and prevent a decline if there was a fall or stress during my episode of care. I want to share the wealth. I don't want everyone else having to scour the research to find out exactly what I found out. Well, we have one quick hour, so I'm going to just dig in. So let's start out with what is the research saying we should address to make our progress better? Research is now calling for us to add in to our sessions two things. One is is asking that we add in coordination tasks. The second is that we add in divided attention tasks. Why these two things? The research is showing that adding in coordination and divided attention tasks are primary sources of falls in Parkinson's patients. So in other words, falls are primarily being caused by the patient having difficulty coordinating their motions and also dividing their attention as they're moving or walking. So adding in coordination tasks and divided attention tasks into our sessions helps us get at that primary cause of the falls. Is strength and mobility vital to address? Absolutely. So we still want you to keep adding those things in, but we should also be peppering coordination, and divided attention tasks as we strengthen or as we have someone walk or even better, balance. By doing this, we get to the source of that problem or the problems. I did provide examples of the research that I found explaining why this is important, and that's in your resource handout. So what types of coordination tasks can you do? Whether you're a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, these can be used, and we're going to go through some examples. A lot of what I'm going to talk about, I use a lot in my treatments, and I find a big difference when I incorporate them. You will find examples of these same exercises that we're going to talk about In your resource handout. What I did was make sure that I gave you a table of some more complex coordination tasks and also some more simple coordination tasks. We all know with Parkinson's that it's a snowflake disease. One patient is different from the other. You're probably going to find that you might be using a little bit of one table provided and a little bit of the other, depending on what type of patient you have at that moment. Feel free to change some of those suggestions or add in a bit of what you think will help. Maybe you're going to build off on some of those suggestions. You know your patient best. So while these are suggestions, you can always add on and build off of them. If I give a patient Some of the exercises that we're going to be talking about, and have them do those same exercises weeks later, they've improved. What I find is it's hard for my patients to do a lot of the coordination tasks that I'm asking them to do initially. And I always tell them, we're going to come back to this in three or four weeks. Let's give it a try. You'll be in a different place, it'll be easier. And it always is. But also, as I start adding in coordination tasks into their plan of care, I find that their walking is a little bit better, their balance is a little bit better, their ADLs are a little bit better. Why is that? Because these coordination exercises get into or force parts of the brain that are underactivated. To start becoming more activated or areas of the brain that need improvement start becoming a little bit more greased in essence a lot of the coordination areas of the brain in parkinsons are underactivated and that's why coordination is a problem for people with parkinsons and when we start asking that our patients do some coordination tasks, they may not be perfect the first time they do them. They may have to really think it through. They may slow down. They may make errors. But the more we force them or ask of them to do coordination tasks during their sessions, the skill improves because they're using that part of the brain and activating it a lot more. So when the time comes that they need that coordination, their brain can help them with that. Their brain can respond. Surprisingly, a pen or a pencil can be used to help with coordination. It's a lot of times low cost. We usually have a pen or pencil on us or the patient might have a pen or pencil on them. So a pen or a pencil is a really handy tool to have and might be your first step to start adding in coordination tasks. I many times will hand a patient a pen and have that patient roll that pen between their fingers, rolling it back and forth. This improves all of those fine muscles in the hand. So fine motor coordination improves just by the patient doing that motion. For OTs, we focus a lot sometimes on in-hand manipulation, moving those fingers, those digits, and also holding on to that item and manipulating it in many different ways. That is the core of fine motor coordination. And in Parkinson's, that's a really hard skill. Think about when someone with Parkinson's is trying to pick up medications That's a really hard skill for them to pick up that pill, manipulate it in their hand, in their palm, and get it to their mouth. So just by rolling that pen back and forth in one hand, we're improving that skill and eventually that ADL. To increase the complexity, have the patient do that same motion, with both hands, so we have a pen in both hands, and that patient has to coordinate both hands so that pen is moving back and forth between their fingers at the same time. To add in more coordination and strengthening, you can have the patient do some motions as they're trying to roll that pen between one or both hands. I sometimes will start out where the patient has to squat while they're rolling that pen or pencil between their fingers. And then I might move on to where that patient then has to lunge and alternate their feet as they're lunging as they're rolling the pen between their fingers of the both hands. You can have the patient walk as they're rolling the finger bet- the pen between their fingers. You can even have the patient Balance on one leg while they're rolling that pen between their fingers. If there are some balance concerns, you can absolutely have that patient proper stabilize themselves with one hand on a counter or a chair while the other hand is moving that pen between the fingers. You can also add some wrist and or ankle weights to the patient as they're doing these motions and rolling that pen between their fingers. Those weights are going to add some proprioception and help their their brain figure out where they are in space but you're also getting a strengthening component. You could always have the patient do some of these motions sitting so the patient may not be walking as they're moving that pen between their fingers but maybe they're trying to move their wheelchair with one hand and also move that pen between their fingers or maybe they're marching while they're seated and they're trying to move that pen between their fingers so a lot of these examples you can accommodate for someone that's sitting and is not a mobility candidate or Maybe you're doing more lying down supine type tasks. You can still add in that pen rolling between the fingers while that patient is moving their legs in a different direction, but they're seated or they're lying down. Another option is you can use a flex bar. So a flex bar, I love to use, but it's not necessary that you have one if you don't have one. It's it's a rubber piece of equipment that bends in many different directions. I did provide some examples of different companies that make this type of equipment. It's Name different things depending on the company that's making it. So I did provide you with that information in case you're thinking, huh, I don't have one and I kind of would like to have one. Or if you're not looking to purchase anything additional, that is totally fine. You can use in its place a roll towel or even a pool noodle. You can cut the pool noodle to a couple of inches and have the patient use the pool noodle. Those are fine to use as well. The flex bar has a little bit of rebound, resistance, vibration. So you're getting a little bit of proprioception that you wouldn't get if you use the towel or the pool noodle. But again, not necessary if you're not looking to buy extra equipment. You might even find that your clinic or um, your hospital, your setting, your subacute setting, wherever you're at, has one, and you just didn't know. And that could be used then. What I end up having the patient do is slant down the ends of that item that I'm using. If the ends meet, great. If not, not absolutely necessary. I'll also have the patient try slanting the ends up to meet. I'll even have the patient try ringing in and out that flex bar, like they're ringing out a towel that has water in it you can even have the patient flex and extend their wrists over that flex bar or that pool noodle or that towel that you rolled up so those are a couple different motions you can have the patient do for coordination and to strengthen all of those muscles in the upper extremity with that flex bar that towel or that pool noodle To add in more coordination, you can always have the patient do lower extremity motions while they're using that item. You can have the patient squat, lunge, tap their toes in a direction, balance on one leg, walk. You can even have the patient try hopping. On on one leg as they're doing those upper extremity motions with that item. If you do need to have the person hold on to a chair or a wall as they're balancing or hopping, you might want to make sure that the, the motion that you choose for the upper extremity to do with that item is something that can be done with one hand. Sometimes for endurance, I've seen some OTs hold on to that flex bar or the towel or the poo noodle and just kind of shake that elbow back and forth to get a little bit of endurance. So that could be an option with just one hand. If you need to have the patient, use the other hand for propping for stability. You could add in wrist weights and lower extremity weights to add in some proprioception and strengthening. You can also add in a metronome and this will add in a little bit of a divided attention component. There are many free metronome apps that you can download either on an iPhone or an Android phone. I did provide a couple of examples and where to find a free one in the resource guide I prefer anything that's free that would be my suggestion and there's plenty of those but there's no recommended app that works best the free ones seem to work just fine for me I have looked in the research to see if there's a recommended speed for the metronome I haven't found one yet I usually will start The metronome at around 50 beats per minute, and have the patient try that task that I'm trying to have them do with that beat. If it's really hard for the patient to keep the beat of the motion to the metronome, I will systematically start turning down that beat to a lower number, usually by one value increments. And I'll see with each time the patient tries to do that motion if the effort got better. If the patient is doing the motion perfectly at 50 beats per minute and it almost seems too easy, I will start increasing the value of that beat by one as that patient's doing the motion. And stop once I can see that it's a little bit of effort for the For the person, they really have to think about it. You can even ask the patient for their feedback if you're not quite sure if it's hard or too easy for the patient. You could have the patient do some of the lower extremity motions while they're seated and using their upper extremity. So think about marching while they're seated or think about toe taps where they're seating. And then they're also using that flex bar, that roll towel, or that pool noodle with their upper extremity. Lying down, it would be very similar. Maybe they're going to be lifting one leg up at a time as their upper extremity is using that flex bar or that pool noodle or that roll towel. So there are many ways to get at that same goal in any position that the patient can tolerate. I will even add in coordination tasks purely when I have wrist weights or leg weights, ankle weights on the patient. I will have the patient sometimes do a couple different upper extremity motions together or an an upper extremity and a lower extremity motion together. So an example would be with wrist weights and or ankle weights on, I'll have the patient squat and also do... A bicep curl and that has to be coordinated their upper extremity has to be coordinated with the lower extremity or I might have the patient punch the ceiling with both arms as they're squatting or lunging and that has to be coordinated that upper extremity and lower extremity you can add any upper extremity exercise you want to pair with almost any lower extremity exercise You could have squatting, you can have lunging, you can have posterior kicks, you can have marching, you can have toe taps, you can have balancing, you can have hopping. You could even have a couple upper extremity motions like bicep curls and tricep punches. Two motions, but can they sequence that? And do that in the pattern. Maybe add on a third motion after the tricep punches. So you could just stay with upper extremity motions and see if they can get a string of motions and coordinate those motions. What might seem really easy to us, a lot of times is really hard for someone with Parkinson's. Their coordination is impaired. And we see this coordination impairment as these patients sequence multiple motions or do ADLs, like putting their shoes on. Sometimes it's not that they don't know how to put their shoes on. It's that they can't coordinate those motions. So adding in a lot of coordination tasks into our sessions can help our patients sequence a lot of those motions needed for ADLs. You can even have the patient alternate marching and tapping their knee with with one of their hands. You could do the ipsilateral hand with the ipsilateral knee marching. And once that gets easy, you can make it harder. Do the contralateral hand that taps the contralateral knee that's coming up. You can even have it where it's the ipsilateral knee coming up and the ipsilateral arm is just coming straight up into the air. When that gets easy, it's the contralateral arm to leg. So simple motions, but someone with Parkinson's will really need to think that through. To make it harder or more complex, you can add a metronome to that marching or knee tapping with the arms sequencing. Think about the rhythm of someone with Parkinson's walking and moving around. A lot of times, that rhythm is impaired. And we need to to simulate that in many different ways. We need to simulate the patient having a rhythm with motions, and keeping that rhythm. And other ways to do it besides walking is really important so that that brain gets many different ways of coordinating and sequencing and having a rhythm with motion because there is a rhythm to our motions. You could also do alternating heel walks or alternating toe walks to make it harder. It could be it's... First, heel walks for both feet, and then toe walks for both feet. And the patient has to alternate between heel-toe, heel-toe. You could add weights to the ankles to make it a little bit harder. Add some proprioception and add some strengthening. To make it even harder, you can add the metronome. See, that patient can have a rhythm as they're doing that and also thinking. Ideally, we want to give these patients more bang for their buck during their sessions. So if we have them strengthening and we embed coordination tasks and a divided attention task, which we're going to get to next, there's more bang for your buck. Their session is a little bit more rich in a sense. So again, all of these motions you can always adapt for seated and supine, so you can always adapt all of these things for the patient that isn't as ambulatory. So let's think about what can we do for divided attention tasks. Some of what we just spoke about could also be thought of as divided attention tasks because patient has to move and think at the same time. So you're not wrong if you wanted to use some of those for divided attention tasks, but if we think about purely divided attention tasks, I'm going to give you now some examples. I do have in your resource handout some examples that we're going to go through and it's separated between complex and simple in a table. So you can absolutely use that as we go through, or maybe that's going to be a reference for you later on. A lot of times, if you look at research with Parkinson's and divided attention tasks, what's recommended will be mental math as that patient is walking or doing strengthening tasks or naming items from different categories as that patient is walking or doing strengthening tasks. So an example would be if you had a baseball fan, you might say to that patient, okay, every time you take a step, I want you to say out loud a baseball team. That would be an example of naming items from different categories. The metronome, when we add that in, that is considered a divided attention task. So these are all great places to start, and you can always use those examples, but I'm going to give you a couple other ones to think about. I like to add in snapping of the fingers as that patient is doing a strengthening task or walking. Snapping the fingers a lot of times is hard for someone with Parkinson's. They really have to think it through because of their fine motor coordination. So this might be something you want to add in so that they get better at that fine motor coordination, but also they're dividing their attention with the strengthening task or walking. So think about as they're snapping their fingers, they could be squatting, lunging, toe tapping, hopping on one leg, marching, whatever you would like to see them do with that lower extremity. Another idea would be that person twirls a pen or a pencil between their fingers as they're doing a strengthening task or walking. Something else that we always forget about that is always a good idea to see if the patient can do, can that patient walk and carry a lightweight item? Like a box or a cup. And you can always make it harder by upgrading the item weight as appropriate for that patient. So this is a very functional task and works on real life things. Some suggestions to think about. Can that patient carry an empty cup and walk? Or maybe if they're not ambulatory, can that patient wheel in their wheelchair? and figure out how to hold on to that cup that's empty. If that's easy, fill the cup with water. See what happens. Can the patient walk or wheel in the wheelchair with an empty dish or an empty plate that they're carrying? If that's easy, can can that plate or dish have items on it? Even water bottles. Nowadays, many people carry water bottles around. Can that patient carry that water bottle around without dropping it or forgetting that they have it in their hand? And as they're moving around, we don't want to see that water bottle drop. It is amazing to see also if you use a plastic cup versus a glass And what I mean by plastic cup would be the ones sometimes that are at the water coolers where you need just the right pressure to hold on to that cup and not crush it. A lot of times someone with Parkinson's has difficulty grading their pressure in their fingers. They either have too much or too little of a pressure. So adding in that little extra detail can make a difference in how hard the patient has to pay attention, how hard the patient has to work, and can be very functional to work on. The other thing to take note of, a lot of times as someone with Parkinson's is carrying something and walking or rolling in the wheelchair, their attention is going to wean. And all of a sudden that item that's in their hand is now tilted and then maybe falling out of their hand. So can we get them to the point where they can keep their eye and their attention on that item they're carrying and safely get to where they need to go? Some other items to think about that the patient can carry could be their phone, an iPad, or maybe a book if they are someone that usually is reading during the day. You can even have items placed on rollators, If that person is usually using a rollator or maybe it's in their lap as they're in their wheelchair. Some other options for divided attention tasks. You can provide trivia questions to the person on topics that that person knows as they're doing some strengthening tasks or balancing You do want to make sure that maybe you Google this information real quick for a couple minutes before you go into the session so that you have that list handy. So it might take a couple minutes of extra work before you go in to see the patient. And the patient can answer the questions while they're doing that strength task, walking, rolling in the wheelchair. Something so simple to think about that we don't always remember to address is can that person walk or wheel in their wheelchair and have an actual conversation without stopping? Or can they do their ADL task and converse with you and not stop as they're talking to you because they can't do two things at once? This is something that we do wanna make sure patient can do. It works on divided attention, but also we don't want them out in public walking or wheeling in the wheelchair trying to have a conversation. And as soon as they start getting into their point of view, there's an abrupt stop from the patient. And that could lead to people bumping into them or a fall. So we want to make sure that they can do that. So you might have the patient just try to continue the walk and talk and see if they can get their point across and also keep walking or wheeling. If the patient is someone that likes to cook, you might actually read them directions for a recipe. And that patient has to repeat that line from the recipe that you just read to them as they do their strength task or as they're walking. Many times I have patients tell me that they'll read something from a recipe, go to do that action, and they don't remember what that that item is that they need to get or that action that they need to do. So adding that in can help. Another example can be you using a ball and have that patient bounce the ball or play catch with you or a family member or a staff member. Every time that patient bounces the ball, maybe they need to give you a letter that's going to spell out a word. To make it harder, can that patient spell the word backwards? To make it even harder, can the patient give you every other letter to spell a word that you give them as they're bouncing the ball or as they're catching that ball? If you're looking for an even higher level option, can the patient stand on one leg as they do that or hop? So just some higher mobility things to think about. So those are some suggestions to add in. You can upgrade or downgrade these tasks as you see fit. And you will start seeing when you add in some of these suggestions that there's progress. So now let's take a look at another issue that we run into a lot, that patient with Parkinson's having some anxiety or depression I've run into a a lot this issue. And this can happen because you're, you're typically keeping a Parkinson's patient on sometimes for longer, and there might be a progression or there might be a stressor that happens during that plan of care that leads to an uptick in their anxiety or an uptick in their depression. Any change sometimes can lead to this. I've had it with patients where there was construction in their home and it threw them off of their routine and there was an uptick in their anxiety or depression. Or a plumber came and it just disrupted their day and that was a disruption enough to increase their anxiety or depression. I've even had it where a patient went on vacation and enjoyed his vacation but it was so much more than what he's used to doing that there was an uptick in his anxiety. A move can do this. Even the family stressor can uptick these emotions. Anxiety and depression is common in patients with Parkinson's because the chemicals in the brain do change. So just because of that, these patients are more susceptible to having some anxiety or depression. They may have had anxiety or depression before all of this started, and a stressor can make that anxiety or depression more pronounced. And a lot of times we find when that happens, the patient feels like they progressed, and sometimes they say they're fearful of what that means, and they almost down spiral a little bit, and sometimes they stop doing a lot of the routine because of the anxiety or depression. It's almost paralyzing for them. So what we do end up seeing is that many times after that stressor is gone and the patient gets back in their routine, things can go back to a normalcy for that patient. The patient can return to their routine and things are back where they were. What can help during that decline in anxiety or depression or this response to a functional decline or stressor is spending some time during a session and noting that change or have the patient talk about that change a little bit and educate the patient and the family on why this happens. It's very common. A lot of times patients need to hear that it's common, to realize it's not just them going through it and they don't have to worry, research is right now confirming that this is a critical first step to addressing that change in anxiety and depression. As the patient's many times very worried that this is a decline to maybe a new stage, many times that worry leads to them being less mobile and compliant with their home exercise program because they think, why do it? or they're consumed with worry or sadness, and they just can't get past that to do their home exercise program or their normal activity. By educating the patient that they're not alone, and it is a part of the disease, it does help calm them, and it helps calm that worry that it may not be a true decline, and there is something that they can do, get back to their normalcy, their routine. Next, the research recommends finding ways the patient can remain mobile to prevent an actual decline that the patient can't recover from or adapt to. Maybe it's helping them write down the exercises that the patient can do each day to stay mobile. Or maybe the exercises are videoed on the patient's cell phone or a family member's cell phone so the patient can view those exercises and do them. Having a set plan to stay mobile is vital at this stage with someone with Parkinson's and prevents a progression. But due to cognitive changes and sometimes emotional changes, they need clear-cut plans to see through some of the weeds of the anxiety or the depression. And having something external or something that they can see, hear, feel, touch can help them take that first step to get back on track. And we're going to go through some options for a home exercise plan to keep someone mobile every day. So if that is something that you're thinking, well, I'm not quite sure how I would do that, that's going to come later. So if you need that example, that will come later. But to help manage the anxiety, The research recommends teaching the patient how to diaphragmatically breathe. The patient can do this as a home exercise program. Diaphragmatic breathing actually helps breathing issues as well. A lot of times we find that someone with Parkinson's doesn't have that speech production that's loud enough. Well, diaphragmatic breathing can help with that. So we're also addressing that as well. So there's two benefits to teaching this. The diaphragm is a really strong muscle, very strong breathing muscle. It's used for singing and talking. So strengthening this muscle via diaphragmatic breathing can also help some of that speech production as well, or speech projection. Now, if that speech projection isn't a problem yet, adding in diaphragmatic breathing can prevent that. From becoming a problem early on. So, you can also let your patient know that that's also why it's important to diaphragmatically breathe. To diaphragmatically breathe, you want to make sure that the patient's sitting up straight. And by making that patient sit up straight, they're broadening that chest a little bit and their upper back is broadened. That's really important. That will give you some really good access to the diaphragm. And the stoop posture is a big thing in Parkinson's. So even just educating the patient on how to sit up straight so that they don't have that stoop posture is a good thing to start with. To diaphragmatically breathe after the patient is sitting up straight, or if you're doing the standing, standing up straight, You want the patient to breathe in and out through their nose. Just that simple motion of breathing in and out through their nose will activate the diaphragm. There is a nerve that goes from your diaphragm to the brain that will actually calm the patient. That nerve will change the response of fight or flight to the more calming nervous system. It's recommended that you do this breathing for at least two minutes or 12 breaths, so you can have the patient set the timer for two minutes or count the breaths. They can do longer if they want. You can have the patient have a set time and do this every day for homework, or they can do it a couple times a day for homework. Or if you want this to become a normal type of breathing for the patient, maybe you have the patient take the first hour of their day after they wake up and they have to diaphragmatically breathe that whole hour as they're doing whatever they need to do to get ready. When that gets easy, they can up at the two, then three, and so on. You can even encourage patients to diaphragmatically breathe as they're doing their exercises with you to decrease anxiety. The trick is to instruct the patient to breathe out during the most vigorous part of the motion that you're having the patient do and breathe in during the least vigorous motion. So for example, if you had someone squatting, you might have someone breathe out as they descend down to squat and breathe in to rise. And I do have in your resource handout instructions on how to do that diaphragmatic breathing. For depression, what's recommended is that we open up those chest muscles and have some upright posture. This comes from yoga research, where they're finding that those with depression round their shoulders, they stoop, and they curl into themselves. By reversing that posture, we get more positive feelings, we get more confidence. And someone with Parkinson's, we see a lot of stoop posture predominantly. So these patients are predisposed to have that negative feeling with that stoop posture. To improve that posture and those negative feelings, it's recommended that we address the posture, but that we add in some motion or a flow to great extent exercises to do, and they come from yoga, is you can do a sun salutation or a forward bend flow. So the sun salutation, you can do the seated or standing. The patient rises their arms up towards the ceiling. They then abduct their arms out to the side as they lower their trunk down. And their hands are going to touch whatever's accessible to them as they get their trunk down towards their legs. It could be that their hands touch their legs, their thighs, the floor, whatever's accessible. Once they get down there, the patient then raises their trunk up as their arms abduct up towards the ceiling. You can have the patient do it 10, 20, 30 times, whatever you think is possible. Another option is that forward bend flow. So to do this, you're going to have the patient raise their arms to the ceiling and bend their trunk forward towards the ground as they lower their arms to the ground and behind them. Then the patient raises their arms and their trunk back up towards the ceiling. And this can be done seated or standing. It could be done 10, 20, 15 times, 30 times, whatever you think. And for these two flows, the patient goes at their own pace. Both of these exercises are in the resource handout, and there are pictures to help guide you through. So those would be motions that I would incorporate into my session if I had to then address the anxiety, the depression. So let's move on to what else can you do to prevent or improve the kyphotic posture. That is kind of the last thing that I, I, one of the last things that I notice patients have trouble with, and it's, it's hard to fix. Research is now linking posture to an increase in falls in Parkinson's. Parkinson's patient's primary goal is balance, and this is a good place to start. Meaning, getting that upright balance posture. Once a patient is standing more upright, when you start to address balance and mobility, these things are already a bit better. Feel free to add any posture exercises you like that you think would be really good and work nicely but I'm going to give you a couple suggestions. A good stretch that can prevent this kyvotic posture or help it is at night when the patient lays down, this will be almost their homework, have the patient set a timer for five minutes and lay flat on their bed without any pillows and their arms abducted. So this is corpse pose and yoga. This will stretch all the muscles in the chest that are tight but also in the neck. This can prevent kyvotic posture in a newly diagnosed patient or decrease that posture in someone that already is kyphotic. I have worked with a few neurologists that recommend this a diagnosis for patients now. You might find initially that the patient's neck doesn't touch the bed when they first are lying down. This tells you how tight and kyphotic that person is. They will get an intense stretch, but over time it will decrease and gravity will slowly lower that neck and that head to the bed. One thing that we sometimes forget is that when there's kyphosis, the head lowers to the chest and over time those posterior neck muscles get very tight and the anterior muscles shorten which can prevent the head from raising totally upright. So to achieve fully upright standing, we have to address the neck also. So the other thing I do after introducing that supine stretch is I will use a theraband or a resistance band, any strength that you think is appropriate, and place it around the patient's forehead. And I'll hold on to the ends of that resistance band. If you don't have a TheraBand, you can use a towel or a yoga strap. Next, I have the patient do some active motion with their neck. I usually have the patient move their head down to their chest and then look up to the ceiling. I then have the patient look to the right and to to the left. You can have the patient go at their own pace and even hold a stretch wherever they're feeling it. You can have the patient do this 10, 20, 30 times, whatever you think they can handle. These neck motions can be done seated or standing up. I know that this next suggestion is going to sound very simplistic for addressing upright posture, but having the patient stand against the wall for increasing amounts of time really helps. Day one, you can have the patient stand against the wall and measure the distance from the wall to the back of their head, or their subocciput. occiput This is your pretest. You can measure in inches or centimeters. A lot of programs for documentation will ask it to be in centimeters. Next, I instruct the patient to stand against the wall and try to get their shoulder blades and back of the head touching the wall. This may not happen. Their head may not touch the wall, and that's okay, but they want to aim for it. I do explain that this is what we hope to achieve eventually without the wall. And I do explain the typical signs of fatigue, such as back tightness, leg fatigue, shaking. By standing up straight, you're engaging more of your legs, so I do expect that there's going to be tiredness pretty quick. And I will time the patient to see how long they can stand in this position. And once they get tired, I stop that timer. And I give them a break. I record that time. And then the next time I see them or the subsequent session, I'll have that patient stand against that wall again and add a minute longer. And I will do this until they reach 15 minutes because that's how long we typically stand or sit before we move around. So I want them to have that 15-minute endurance for ADLs. The patient can hold on to their walker or cane as they're standing. That's fine. If the patient feels that they want to stand for longer than a one-minute increment, that's an increase. Great. But I want them to be able to, to guide me with that. They know their body best. And I will always have them take that break at the first sign of fatigue as a teachable moment. With Parkinson's, we don't want them going past their tiredness because then they fall. And a lot of them aren't in tune with their body. They have to learn what it feels like to be tired. And we want them to make good decisions when they do feel tired. Once the patient can stand against the wall for 15 minutes, I work on walking with upright posture. I want the patient to feel the same way they did up against that wall. Their muscles have strengthened in their chest, their back, and their neck, and they've got enough endurance now that they can walk with better posture. I also will then start incorporating balance tasks with their upright posture. I find that once the patient stood against the wall, balance and walking just gets a little bit better. So this standing is simplistic, but a game changer. You still want to add in any strengthening exercises that you like for posture that you think will help. Some options to help with getting the scapular abduction when walking without the wall are you could have the patient purchase a posture corrector strap. Um, They sell a lot of these at DME stores and on Amazon. But I find the patient can a lot of times still get that curve, that stoop. You could place some kinesio tape or rock tape between the scapulae. You want to make it one piece vertical and one piece horizontal. And I did put in the resource handout a link to a video, a YouTube video, that shows you how to do this. Um, You want to make sure that the person has good upright posture before you place the tape and you're placing the tape with some tension. Essentially, we want to see an eye be made. So we'll have a vertical piece and then two horizontal pieces. But sometimes I've had therapists say, well, that's too much. I just do a, a horizontal piece between the scapulae, and that works. So you could play around with the number of tape that you use in the placement. Um, everyone finds something that works a little bit better for them, or you have a patient where something works better for them. I did also find a really cool gadget that's backed by research with Parkinson's patients. It's called Upright Go 2. You place it between... Um, your scapulae, or you can even put it somewhere on your trapezius. It has a little bit of adhesive. There's a vibration to remind you to stand upright, and it has an app to track your record. It's essentially biofeedback. There is an out of pocket expense for this, but it can be used to help someone sit or stand upright. And sitting upright is really important because a lot of times patients aren't when they do their ADL. So you might be working just on sitting upright. The last part of the podcast is how do you get more buy-in with home exercise programs and staying mobile? With Parkinson's, it's vital that someone is moving throughout the day. Every patient with Parkinson's is different and will have different abilities. There's no one activity or exercise that we can say will work for everyone. But what does work is writing down a plan for four or five exercises each day of the week that the patient can do. You know the patient best, so what you think exercise-wise is appropriate will be appropriate for them. You might have a day of leg exercises, a day of arm exercises, a day of posture exercises, a day of motor coordination exercises, maybe a day of balance exercises, core exercises. You might have a day of stretching and cardio. I also will suggest that the exercises are done in the morning after the patient gets up for the day so that the exercises get done. The rest of the day, the patient can participate in enjoyed activities and get up at least every hour. That is really important also. Patients tend to sit in front of the TV for many hours. You might have an app or a reminder to remind them to get up and move every hour. I did provide an article that provides input on apps that will do that reminder for you, for that patient to get up every hour. There are tons out there and many are free. So if you're interested in that, there is an article that reviews all of those apps for the Android and the Apple. I love anything free, but some, some I think may have a little bit of a price. I also provided examples of home exercise programs for a higher level patient and also a lower level patient so that you can see how you could situate it for every day of the week. And some examples of activities for that patient. So that's all in your resource guide. We do want to make sure that these patients are moving because the research finds exercise in Parkinson's patients increases activation of the cerebellum, the occipital lobe, the parietal lobe, and even the frontal lobe. These are all key areas of the brain affecting all of the symptoms of Parkinson's. So it is really important that we let our patients know why it's so important to stay mobile because it is increasing the activation to those key areas for them to stay mobile and healthy and not have a regression or a quick progression. So that might be education that you give to them. I did put in the resource handout, also a link to an article going over that information if you're interested in that. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that you got a lot out of it and that you have some tips to try and, and see how they work with your patients. I hope that the resource guide is a really good handout for you and a guide for you. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. My email is on that handout guide and I'd be happy to answer any questions or if you have ideas that you would love to throw at me, just tell me, hey, I've done this and it works really well. I love to learn as well. So feel free to add in your input. I do appreciate you listening because I know we all have busy lives and I'm sure you have family and notes to do. So I appreciate that you're taking the time out to listen and to add in some of these tips. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for Summit for allowing us to Share all the wealth of this information that's out there. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or Click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.